I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we're all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shouting match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes but from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. Good to see all y'all sitting way in the back. Oh my gosh. I must, I must need deodorant. <laughs> Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to be, uh, we're going to finish chapter three and actually lean over into chapter four today. You're welcome to grab a Bible down the center column of seats if you don't have one. And you can look at the table of contents for the book of Philippians. It should be around page 380-something. We'll be in the third chapter. We're going to read together today out loud verses 12 through the end of the chapter and then stop at chapter 4, verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, if you'd like, you can read these with me on the screen as well. So here we go. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to say thank you. It's a season of thanksgiving and of all the things that we have to be thankful for, for family, for friends, for a roof over our head, for your provision, for food to eat, for uh, this great country that we live in. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for yourself, for Jesus, for his rescue of us, you bringing us from uh, a life, a world of darkness into the kingdom of your son. We thank you for the gathering of your church. We thank you for 
your word, your timeless, authoritative word. And we pray that uh, we would see you in it, God, that we would hear your gospel, that you would change us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today in our text, we are talking about the theme of maturing as a Christian, growing up. Really, the theological word that the Bible uses is sanctification. And one unique way to describe spiritual growth, growing up as a Christian, is to say it's like a sandwich. Y'all eat sandwiches? All right, so let me qualify that. I'm not talking about those that eat wraps. I'm talking about a lettuce wrap, like a piece of lettuce with food in it. That, that, that won't work for my metaphor. Uh, I'm also not talking about y'all that eat your sandwich in a pita. I mean like a true sandwich, bread, bread, some goodness on the inside, turkey, ham, roast beef, little bit of vegetables, seasoning, condiments, I mean that kind of sandwich. And of course, I'm not trying to make you hungry, but I'm trying to convey a picture of the theological process that God uses in our life um, to, to, to grow us. He starts with justification. In fact, if you recall last week as Nick preached, verse 8 and 9, Paul, if I could, I mean, these verses are, are Paul expressing, his, I mean, his, the totality of who he is as a Christian. Look at what he says back in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's the part that he talks about, this process of justification. And he says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, justification is, uh, is all of God. It's, it's God forgiving you of your sin and making you right with God, not because of what you've done, because you look good, that you said the right things, that you gave, that you, there's, there's no accolade or superlative that you could give of yourself that justifies you before God. Paul says, I'm justified because of my, by, by trusting in, in Jesus. It's, it's you going before a judge and you're guilty of, of everything. And you stand before him as the judge is ready to give a verdict on your life, and you're expecting condemnation, and the judge basically says, oh, you're free to go. He tells the guard to take off your jail clothes, and he releases you from your chains, and he tells that you can walk out full and free. That's justification. It's all the work of God. You don't do anything to earn it. And that's one bookend of this sandwich that I'm talking about. Here's the other bookend. It's glorification. And Paul speaks about that in our, our verses today, verse 21, Jesus, upon his return, Paul says, will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Jesus here is talking about his second coming. We kind of celebrate that at Christmas. We celebrate the Jesus coming, incarnating himself as a baby. Obviously, he grew up. He uh, lives a perfect life, goes, d dies, resurrects, goes to heaven. One day, the Bible says Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back with an army. He's going to have a war. He's going to initiate the resurrection of the dead. And at that moment, he's going to reunite our, our souls. If we don't meet him in the air because we're alive, he's going to reunite our souls with our once dead bodies, resurrecting us to newness of life. So you got a bookend of justification. you got a bookend of 
glorification. Those are the ends of your sandwich, and you got all the contents in between. And those contents, that goodness, the part of your life that, man, is the, the totality of your life. That's sanctification. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about maturing, growing up as Christians. And in our text, Paul basically is talking about two things. He gives us two points to this idea of growing up. He says, press on. He says, stand firm. Let's look at press on. Verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. All right, those of you that think you're perfect, raise your hand. I got, I got one. Anybody else? Right. Oh, I got another. Anybody else? Check it out. None of us are willing to admit that. But, but don't we sometimes act like it? Don't we sometimes act like we're, we're perfect? It would be right to actually acknowledge that there are some religions that you all are familiar with that claim that we can gain perfection in this life. The Dalai Lama with Buddhism tells that you can achieve perfection in this life. The Catholic Church has a, a teaching, a teaching called uh, consecrated life that says you can, in a sense, gain a type of perfection in this life, even in the Protestant faith of Christianity. Um, uh, Methodism, uh, derived by John Wesley. There's uh, this term called the Wesleyan perfectionism uh, that uh, Wesley taught that you could gain a spirituality for yourself that was near perfect. Uh, my family on my mom's side uh, uh, worships in the holiness tradition, and the holiness movement says that you can be so spiritual that you gain perfection in this life. And it would be wrong for me to say that those religions, that, that part of Christianity is being heretical, but it, it it doesn't take into consideration the whole counsel of God. What does the, the whole counsel of God say in regards to us and perfection? Obviously, Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes that we're to be perfect because he is perfect. But when you see the word perfect in the Bible, t- t- typically, almost always when it involves men, the Bible is encouraging us to uh, reach toward uh, completing of finishing something. Here in Philippians chapter 3 in particular, Paul is talking about uh, maturing, growing up. Therefore, our topic, growing up as a Christian. And so no, no person, definitely not a Christian, attains sinless perfection in this life. But that doesn't mean that we don't try to, right? Think about the culture that we live in. We are slaves to a culture that gives us this picture, this giant picture, really, of, of perfection. Think of what you see on TV and of movies. We take the, the most beautiful, the most handsome people in all the world. We put them um, on, on the tube. You see them everywhere, and we want to be like them. Think of all the, the airbrushed, Photoshop people you see in magazines and on social media. I mean, they're beautiful to start with, and then they like sort of erase the, uh, the little blemishes that they have, and it makes, us, it makes us want to be perfect like their images project to us. We want to look perfect. That's why you spend so much time in front of the mirror, plucking out hairs, covering over blemishes that might be just your natural skin tone. We go to the gym. Why? To pump up those parts that we want. I I should have done that. We pump up those. (laughs) We pump up those parts. I really did not mean to do that. We pump. All right, let's move on. (laughs) Pastor Fupa. Oh my gosh. 
all right, so we pump up those parts that we want to accentuate, and we go and we work hard so that we reduce those parts that, that we don't think look quite right, right? Don't we do that? That's why we eat the things that we eat and don't eat those things that we don't, I mean, because we're worried about how we look. But we not only want to look perfect, we want to perform perfectly. One of the things that shocked my, my family when we moved from North Carolina up to here is how competitive everything is. Like from academics to sports to even the creative arts. And so kid, I mean, parents are stressing out and they're stressing their kids out because they want their kids to be successful, read perfect, starting at age two so they can go to the best schools, get the best opportunities, um, get the best job, and you know, do whatever happens after you've done everything superlatively. It's the pressure of living here in this area that we, we live in. We want to look perfect, we want to perform perfectly. Uh, I've learned, because I have some perfectionist, perfectionistic friends, that some of us just, I mean, God has given us an inclination toward perfectionism. And I, here's what I've learned uh, about all of you that are perfectionists, is you're excellent people. It's like it's in you to do things with excellence. But here's the negative side of perfectionism. Sometimes you won't do something because you can't do it to your standard, and you'll just let something just sit there for a long time. It's like, I don't have eight hours to do it, and so I'm just not going to do it. And sometimes that leaks over into every area of your life. Here's what I think this boils down to. It's sin. The sin in us makes us want people to think we've got it all figured out. And we will challenge anyone that presses against the part of us that wants to look perfect. We deny or defend when we're confronted with sin issues. We blame shift instead of taking responsibility for the things that we've done. We might even... Um, make excuses for our behavior or justify because we want to look good. We want, to, we want people to think that we are perfect. But here's what the Bible gives us as a final assessment. Jesus was the only person that was perfect. Jesus, was, Jesus modeled perfection for us. He modeled humanity perfectly for us. And it's right to say that we should do things lending towards excellence. The Bible tells us that. Colossians 3, do everything as unto the Lord and do that in an excellent manner. We serve an excellent God. But striving for perfection often leaves us frustrated, especially when we fail. And so these words that Paul is giving us right here, right from the get-go, uh, should be encouraging to us. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I haven't reached such spiritual perfection that I don't have room to grow. And if anyone on earth, save Jesus, can say that they have attained a spiritual maturity beyond the average person, it would be Paul. Think about what Paul says in the earlier part of chapter 3 when he's listing his heritage, his accolades, and all those things that he has done well. Yet what Paul reduces his life to is this. He says, I have not arrived yet. I've not gotten there. And so really, in every letter that Paul writes, but particularly in the rest of his words here in our text today, um, he's giving us a strategy for Christian growth. And so he continues, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Say press on. Press on. Press on. This is a racing term. He's talking about athletes and all that goes into being an athlete and doing that well. Um, and that makes sense. Paul is talking to the, the, the Philippians who were a Roman colony, uh, they would have had the language and the persona. I mean, they would have had everything um, that you would have seen in Rome in, in their 
in their colony in, Mass, in, uh, in the Mediterranean. They would have been familiar with the, the Colosseum and the games. Philippi was not too far from the place where the Olympics was, uh, was derived. And so Paul, using this racing analogy, this athletic metaphor, would have been familiar to them. They would have been familiar with the athletes and all the athletes did to discipline themselves to win the games. They would have been familiar with, I mean, the, the things that the athletes put themselves through to gain that prize, the wreath on their head and whatever monetary prize they would have been given as a winner. Press on specifically means to move quickly and energetically towards an objective. One commentator says this, in a spiritual sense, press on suggests a passionate endeavor whereby in response to God's pursuit of me and calling me his own, I recognize that my life belongs to Jesus. And because I belong to Jesus, I want to do everything I can to gain him. Think about Paul's life. I mean, when did, this, when, when did this transformation happen for Paul? Probably at the Damascus Road when Paul is going to persecute Christians. And Jesus comes, knocks him off his horse, causes him to go blind, speaks to him, tells him how he's going to suffer for him. And the rest of Paul's life is really dying to himself and surrendering to all that Jesus would have for him. And so here's, here's what I think Paul is telling us when he says press on. He's telling us that we have a responsibility on our Christian journey. You see, justification comes by faith. We don't do anything to earn it. You can't make it happen. Paul says in Romans 8.30 that whom Jesus justifies, he's going to glorify. It's as if, I mean, after you become a Christian, I mean, you can't do this, but glorification is going to happen. God in his grace is going to get you to the finish line. But here's what Paul is reminding, he's reminding us of. God saved you to enjoy fellowship with Jesus, but that fellowship happens as you diligently and intentionally pursue Jesus. Sanctification happens, and you got to do something. God requires us to participate in our growth as Christians. And so let me ask you, Transit Church, what might pressing on look like in your life? What might pressing on look like in your life. If Jesus is pursuing you so that in return you would pursue him, what might that look like? First, it might be appropriate for me to ask, have you even noticed the ways that God is pursuing you? And how have you in turn responded? A lot of times when people ask us questions like these, I mean, we, we immediately uh, immediately think about the spiritual disciplines that we're doing well that week. Like, oh, I mean, I read my Bible a couple of times. I, I prayed before most of my meals, and uh, we, we did one family devotion. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm doing pretty good as a Christian this week. I haven't done anything sort of like to erase that. But I think what Paul is getting at is a little bit actually beyond that. Earlier in his letter, he, he talked about working out our, our salvation with fear and trembling, that there's some things that God is targeting us. It may be your attitude. It may be you being surrendered to God. It may be how you're living publicly, maybe how you're living privately. It's a number of things that God is working in us that we're supposed to be working out, wrestling over as God works on us. For some of you here, it might be that God wants you to work on your marriage, that he wants your marriage to reflect Christ and the church, and maybe it doesn't right now. For some of you, Paul might be wanting you to embrace the attitude of perseverance and intentionality that that requires when you're leading a selfless, uh, self-denying life toward Jesus. 
Paul goes on and he repeats his strategy for Christian growth in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it. I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ, uh, of God in Christ Jesus. This is a refrigerator verse. This is that verse that, you know, that you go to the Lifeway store and they've got it framed out and you might buy that and put it on the wall by the door and all that. I mean, this is a verse that we quote, right? I mean, but, but what does it mean? Of course, Paul is talking about Christian growth. He's, he's saying personally, you know what? I haven't arrived. I'm aiming to be mature, but I know the, the, the finish line is a ways off, and I've got some things that I've got to be doing as I pursue the Lord because he's pursuing me. And really in this verse and the next, he gives us two steps. That I mean, I mean, the Bible doesn't give us steps, really. But if Paul were to give us steps, he's, he's giving us some ways that we can grow as Christians. And the first is in verse 13. And here's what he says. It's kind of surprising. He says, forgetting what lies behind. How do you grow? You forget what lies behind. There's been a lot of misrepresentation and a whole lot of misapplication of this verse. And you, I mean, you've, you've heard it. Some Christians use this verse as an excuse not to deal with their sin. Um, I know people who have come to faith and they have been like renegades, rebellious, like, like all kind of thievery kind of people before they come to faith. And as, I mean, that moment comes and you're, you're redeemed. God is moving into a different direction. And they use that as an excuse. This verse, forgetting what lies behind, um, as an excuse to not be reconciled to people that they have hurt or harmed, not, not to confess sin, not to ask for forgiveness, not to forgive those who might have sinned against them. I, you've seen people do that as well. Sometimes we don't seek reconciliation. We don't try to right our wrongs in the name of I'm forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what lies ahead. Sometimes we say my, my Christian life has no rearview mirror. I'm just going to look ahead. But that is negating what Paul is talking about here. These people are making excuses and ignoring their past, trying to cover it up. Paul's not talking about that. So what is Paul talking about? Paul is firstly talking about his own past. He's looking at um, the, the great things that he's done. He's looking at the negative things that he has done. And he's saying, I'm going to put that resume to rest. I'm not going to rest on it. I'm not going to rest on my heritage or my past achievements. He says in, in verse 8 and 9, I counted all, even my successes, as a loss for the greater joy of knowing Christ Jesus. I think of note, Paul here is surfacing the consequences in all of our lives when um, living in our past and the effect of that past um, hinders us from living the Christian life as he would have us do it. Um, I think memory is important. God is, Paul is not telling us to completely forget everything. God gives us a memory for, for very good reasons. Think about how the Old Testament um, talks about uh, remembering. God talked to the Israelites of remembering what God had done of remembering him in creation, this great God who created everything that, that we see, of remembering him delivering them from, from Egypt, of remembering how he had taken care of them, provided for them in the wilderness, and brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. In the New Testament, we're told to remember Jesus and his, like, the good things that he's done on the cross, dying in our place for our sins. So the Bible doesn't want you to forget 
everything. So what's Paul talking about here? I think Paul is talking about um, putting behind us those memories, especially those unprocessed memories, that the, the ones that haunt you. Like we all have things that we've done that kind of haunt us. We have experiences in our lives uh, that if you dwell on them, that if you let them become your identity, that, I mean, they paralyze you. They, they, they lend you to, to guilt and shame and fear and embarrassment. And if, I mean, the accumulation of all these things leads you to despair. But here's the other side of the coin. Paul's also saying we can also look back and actually gloat on all the things that we do well. And if we're pridefully boasting about all the things that we've done well, what happens then is as we lead our Christian life, we become complacent or perhaps even apathetic. And so Paul is saying here, what helps us grow into maturity is forgetting. That word means dismissing from your mind. Not, not completely, not that you can't recall it, but making it such that it's not the forefront of, of your existence. Making it so that you're not dwelling on it so much that you can't press forward to what God would have for you in the present. And so some lasting memories that we have, um, here's the, the, the thing. Here's, here's why Paul is saying don't dwell so much on the past. It's because most of our memories, the, the ones that haunt us, are consequences of sins that we've committed in the past. And that's what Satan loves to bring up, doesn't he? That's what he does in my life. He, in, in these little moments, he'll remind me of things that I've done that, that have shame attached to them, or for which I did, I, I was guilty because I did it, or things done to me that I, that I feel responsible for. Satan loves to bring those things up. And so here's what the, the text wouldn't remind us of this, but here's what the Bible tells you to do in those moments. It tells you to remember the gospel. Don't remember your past, remember the gospel. And what does the gospel tell you? It tells that if you can be forgiven. What does Matthew 6 say? Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And he tells them that, you can uh, ask God to forgive you of your debts as you forgive those who uh, have who've sinned against you. The, the teaching of the Bible is, here's why we forgive, because we've been forgiven. You don't, need, you don't need any other reason. We forgive because we've been forgiven. It's those who know the great length that God has gone to forgive us that willingly free other people from, from the, the things that they've done against you. As a Christian, we can be forgiven. Here's the second thing. As you confess sin, the gospel tells us that we can ask for forgiveness, and Jesus cleanses us. He cleanses our mind, renewing us. He cleanses our heart, taking the shame and the condemnation and really the defilement that we feel from some of the things that we've done and things that have been done to us. The gospel promises that as we walk with the Spirit, Galatians 5, Walking in the spirit, not walking in the flesh, we can actually stop doing those things for which we are ashamed of. And here's, I think, the, the, the key to all of this. Uh, what we're noticing here in chapter 3 is Paul is able to talk about his past. And, and if you think about it rightly, Paul had a messed up past, right? Paul is claiming to be a religious person, and he's, he's crushing, killing, or, or at least overseeing the killing of people who don't deserve to be, don't deserve the persecution that he's giving them. But here, Paul is able to talk about this in 
um, not a condemning way for himself. Why? Because he's processed it. He's reconciled what he's done in his past, both with God and with men. And so it was something that he remembered, remembered enough to talk about it, but he had left it in the past, and he was straining forward to what, what God had for him after that. And I think that's the key for us, that we need to leave some of those things back in the back. And so today, you know, this verse might be the verse that you need to, 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 to pay attention to. If you are one that still suffers condemnation, guilt, shame, embarrassment, fear, despair from things that you lived in the past, Paul is saying, here's the remedy for you. Don't remember your past. Remember the gospel. God forgives you. He cleanses you. He puts that stuff on Jesus. And he, um, he's made provision for you to walk in freedom and newness of life. Some of you have had things happen in your past for which you probably need some help. There are some things that we experience in terms of um, trauma, abuse, perhaps even things that you lived as a young person uh, that you disassociated from that you might need help. That's why we have pastoral care. And so, I mean, give us a call. Let us know uh, how we might walk alongside you with that. Sometimes we actually need professional help. We partner with a, uh, a biblical counseling agency that some of you have used. That have, I mean, just it, it, that stuff is there for a reason. All right, I don't want to dwell there, but perhaps I need to dwell there. Remember the gospel. Press on. So how do we grow? Paul says the first step, we forget what lies behind. Here's the second step in the rest of verse 13. Paul says, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is repeating himself. He's actually saying the same thing over again for emphasis, and he's stressing a couple things. He's saying our Christian life is not just about getting to heaven, although heaven is, the, is one of the goals of our lives. It's all about the journey. So Paul is commending that, you know what, don't just skip over the life that God has already given you and then say, hey, I'm in heaven. There's, there's things that we need to be doing here on earth in the life that God is giving us to live. Persevere, intentionality in how we lead our lives. Paul says, don't be apathetic and just give up. We're called to press forward to all that God would have for us. He uses these words. We strain forward. We press on. And he's, he's lending that to we live to one goal. So what's the goal he's talking about here? He's talking about getting to know Jesus. This is the same thing he said in verse 10 uh, last week. Living on earth and getting to know the Lord as well as possible before you enter his presence and you see Jesus face to face. Isn't that a good idea? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually get to know Jesus right here and now. I'm not going to actually, I don't have to wait till heaven. I can get to know him right here so that when I get to heaven and I actually see the Lord, oh, what a joyous welcoming that's going to be. He knows me and I know him. So the goal is getting to know Jesus. And here's the prize. It's, it's kind of similar. It's being with Jesus eternally. And here's the thing, folks. I don't know if you recognize this. The prize comes after the goal, not, not before. You, you, you're running a race, right? Do they give you a prize at the start of the race? No. Well, maybe if you're a kid, they do. But not in real life. 
We only get the prize after we've run the race because that's the way that you run a race. And again, Paul here, he's, he's emphasizing an athletic metaphor. We've got the Olympics coming up uh, in just a few months. Think about, um, we won't see this, but if it were the Summer Olympics, think about those uh, track and field events and how particularly the runners gear themselves up to running a race. I mean, you see them with their, with their Beats headphones on. I mean, they're in the zone. There's people all around them, cameras in their face. What are they doing? I mean, they're just like getting ready. And then the announcer comes and tells them to get on the line. They either get in their blocks or they're in their stance. Gun goes off. They run the race. What are they, what are they doing? They're tuned in to their lane doing their thing. Obviously, there's people all around them. There's runners in the race, and they are aware of that, but they are particularly running their race. Paul is saying, run as one not distracted by all the things that are peripheral to your life, because God has given you a race to run. And so you run the race, you can see it. It's, it's, it's right there. There's the finish line. That's the goal that you're running towards. And for us, of course, that finish line is there's, there, there's life to live, but there's the gain of eternal life with Jesus that happens at the consummation of all things. And oh, by the way, while we're running this race, it's for a prize. There is a prize on the other end of all the labor that we have. And for us, the prize is knowing, is gaining and fully knowing Jesus, knowing him fully and completely. And so I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul sees all of life as a call. God calls us to himself, that's justification. He calls us to glory, that's glorification. And he calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as he said earlier in chapter, chapter 2, as all the stuff in the middle. And of course, that's where the race is lived out. And if Paul were here speaking to you today, he would say, the race is a marathon, not a sprint. In fact, this, this, this Christian growth, it happens slowly. It happens step by step, so slow that you could almost miss some of the things that God is doing in your life if you aren't attuned to, to, to what he's doing. He continues in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we've attained. If I could paraphrase Paul, Paul, I think he's saying correct thinking leads to correct living. Correct thinking lives, uh, leads to correct living. The proverb says this, this is the King James Version, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We live out of the things, just like you, you know, we become what we eat, we actually live out of what we think, firstly in our mind, but definitely in our heart. If it's in your heart that you think you're a certain way, in, in some way that's going to leak out. You're going to live like that. But here's what, what Paul is exhorting us to. He's saying, Here, here's the goal that you would grow up, that you would have, firstly, minds set on attaining maturity in Christ, and that if you think you're mature, this is the Greek word, uh, teleos, teleos, it means physically, physically complete, physically perfect. He says, if you think you're mature, live like it. If you think you're mature, act like it. It goes back to what he said in chapter one, live a life that's worthy of the calling that you've received. And so here's, here's the first way that we grew up as Christians. We press on. Second way is the rest of the passage. The second way that we grow up as Christians, Paul says, stand firm. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those 
who walk according to the example you have in us. When I read this, it actually sounds, I mean, if you don't know Paul, this sounds kind of arrogant and a little egocentric, right? I'm like, who is he to tell me to like follow him? Well, he's the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest Christian that, that lived on the earth. And so it, it kind of might sound uh, arrogant, but here's what Paul is commending us. He's commending us to follow Jesus. There's this whole motif of this is what Christian example looks like in chapter two all the way through chapter three. And we're getting to the end of that. And so Paul is, is painting this picture of, of Jesus the humility of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus, the surrender of Jesus. He says, be like that. And if you need a human example, here's Timothy, who there's nobody like Timothy, who, who loves you, not self, selfishly, but he's willing to love you in the Lord. And, and oh, by the way, here's this nobody, Epaphroditus, who's willing to drop everything that he's doing in his life to, to meet the needs of the church and nobody to, to meet my needs as well. There's nobody like him as well. So Paul gives us uh, just examples, but really he's saying, imitate me, and if you need some other people, here's a few other people that you'd imitate, but we're just pointing you to Jesus. So if you see anything in us that's good, walk as we do, but know that you're walking as Jesus would walk. He's saying live particularly in a way that conforms to not just Christ's life, but Christ's death. And the theologians call this, strange word, cruciform life. Paul's encouraging us to live a life shaped by the cross. Cruciform is crucify, which means obviously cross, form in the shape of cruciform, a life shaped by the cross. What does a life shaped by the cross look like? It's oriented vertically, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And to the degree we're able to, to live life vertically towards God, will enable us to also love our neighbor as ourselves. But principally, he's talking about a cruciform life realizes that your ultimate life comes through death. But think about Jesus. He lived a life. He died, resurrected. True life comes when we identify not just in Jesus' life, but in his death to gain resurrection. And Paul is telling us that we need this this example of those who have lived a cruciform life because there are others who are enemies of the cross who aren't living that way. Verse 18, for many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We aren't certain who these individuals are that Paul is talking about here. Um, they might be Judaizers. In verse 2 and 3, he says, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. They're talking about, he's talking about those who would project circumcision. And in Galatians, Paul talks about Judaizers doing that same thing. But there are definitely opponents of the gospel that the Philippians are encountering because in, this is the third time that Paul is talking about people who are coming as opposition to them and them as a church and uh, believing and living out the gospel. So whomever they are, these are people that hang out in the church, but they're not really of it. You know those kind of people? They're kind of people who hang out with and maybe even profess to be Christians. They come to church. They might serve the church. They might even be doing ministry in the church. But there's no fruit evident in their life, which means they're not true disciples. They're not true Christians. And Paul says three things about these enemies of the cross. Verse 18, he says, um, Firstly, they're enemies of the cross. 
Here's how I interpret this. If you're not completely for God, you're against him. Christian or not, if you're not completely for God, then you are against him. And, and, and here that word cross, I think that Paul is using is important because he's using it um, to represent the gospel. The, the cross is our image of, of Jesus dying in our place for our sin. And the Bible conveys that that's not sad news. It's good news for the Christian because Jesus' death and resulting resurrection by the Holy Spirit gives us life and that abundantly. And so here's what theologians say about the cross. It's, it's the standard. It's the absolute touchstone of both doctrine and practice. And so here's a pastoral note for you. If you hear anybody in a pulpit, on a podcast, TBN, anybody watch TBN still? <laughs> I'm not saying anything about it. It's just like, be careful, right? If you hear anybody teaching, there's no new things, first of all, folks. There's no new revelation. Here's your revelation right here. God can speak to you, yes. He can orient your life by the Holy Spirit. But if anybody comes touting new revelation, you know, I'm, 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 they're adding to the book. And they're enemies of the cross. They're enemies of the gospel. If you hear someone coming up with something new, then you should be asking particularly this. What is this person saying? But more importantly, what are they not saying about the cross? If they're leaving Jesus out, if they're leaving the gospel out, then they are not friends Their enemies. Verse 19, their God is their belly. That word belly is talking about appetites. Paul is saying he's talking about people who their appetites drive them. They care more about the things of this world than living in the self-denying devotion that's required to follow Jesus. What does Jesus say is required of us as Christians? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. That's a difficult life, but that's what God has called us to. Thirdly, verse 19 their minds are set on earthly things. That means they got a hope, but they have, they're, they're hoping in things that, that are vain, that are going to um, not really get them anything of eternal value. And Paul says to the, the degree that these enemies do these things, their end is destruction and glory is their shame. In other words, they're headed down the wrong way and they're, they're just marching to their own agenda. And so here's Paul's guidance for us. He's like, here it is, folks. Follow Jesus. He's he's your goal. Christ and him crucified is the message that you need to be attuned to. Take up the cross. Taking up the cross is the way God calls you to live. And the reason we should not follow the lifestyles of these enemies of the cross is because of what he says in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So, Christian, I mean, you you live in dual citizenship. It's like being a citizen of the United States and a citizen of, of, of England, except it's to the more extreme. You're a citizen of this world, living your your life out here, but Paul in Ephesians 2 would say God has actually given us access to um, be seated with Christ in heavenly places, right? And you live that existence at the same time, even if by your own perception you don't feel like that. And so here's what Paul is encouraging us to do here, to live on earth, but know that heaven is your true home. He's encouraging us that we are technically foreigners. Did you know you were a foreigner? 
I mean, nobody wants that term, right? I mean, you're, you're a native. But he's calling us foreigners. And he's saying far more important than the brief life that you'll live as a sojourner on earth is the fact that you get to live out for eternity a citizenship in heaven. And so if you think earth is good, wait to heaven because it's going to be completely indescribable. There's no words that we, that we have for it. But, but again, let me, I'm going back and forth. He says, but don't, don't forget, you got a responsibility to live on earth as foreigners and pilgrims as well. Live for heaven, but live on earth responsibly as a citizen. Verse 21, Paul says, A bright future awaits citizens of heaven that you'll be transformed into Christ's likeness. Our lowly bodies will, be, will one day look like his glorified body. I like what Paul Tripp says. He says, one day, y'all are going to get a new earth suit. Now, y'all are a young congregation, most of you. For those of us who got a little age on us, that's like, I'm ready for that, a, a new earth suit. Like, I'm going to be able to get up in the morning and not have any pain. I'm going to be able to eat stuff and not worry about what it's going to do to my body. You're going to think back to you know, like that mirror, the gym, eating and not eating stuff. I mean, a new earth suit, I'm going to be able to do, I'm going to be able to run faster than all you jokers in here. And that's what I live for. So here, here are the implications. Here are the implications of heaven. Heaven is this already, not yet. We actually have um, access to heaven right now. We are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Yet we're on a journey that's just begun, and it's like it's inching us towards that homeland little by little. But here's the beauty of, of heaven. We're going to receive eternal bodies. And that day will no longer be any temptations to overcome. And some of you need that. You need that, the, the, the ability to not succumb to the temptations of life. There's going to be no trials to endure. There's going to be no sins that we have to defeat. Amen to that. Amen. Revelations 10 says, time will be no more. No, no more alarm clock in the morning. No more inching down Highway 95 around the Beltway. I mean, come on. What we have done with our lives on this earth will be set in eternal cement as either a monument to God and his glory or to your own foolishness. And so Paul says, verse one, verse one of chapter four, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and my crown. Paul says he's, he's leaning back to verse 21. He says, because of the promises that we have, that will be transformed to be like Jesus. He says, here's all the more reason to stand firm in the Lord. Paul actually doesn't. He doesn't unpack standing firm like he does pressing on. He doesn't give us like a, 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 a sequence of steps, but really he's already done that. What does it mean to stand firm in the Lord? He says, don't be unwavering in your devotion to the Lord. I'm giving you an image, a, a person to follow, uh, the person of Jesus, but also real life people. And, and so be committed, be devoted to following the example that we're setting before you because we're setting before you the example of Jesus. And he says, don't be like these enemies of the cross. Why? Because they'll steer you away. They only want to satisfy their own appetites. And he's saying, hey, you got one foot on earth, but live as if you are already in heaven. That's what he means by stand firm. Here's the last thing that I think you should note here. Paul is, I mean, he saves his reason for joy until the very end. And, and what's his joy here? This is a pastor talking to a congregation that he loves. 
he, he's showing deep affection to these believers that he gets to shepherd. And I think that's why this is a good letter. They responded well to Paul and his teaching. And here's what I, I, I get out of this. We should find joy in, in the ways that God finds joy. What is God joyous about? He's joyous about Jesus, and he's joyous about his creation. God finds joy in his son Jesus, and he finds joy in people. And we, as a mark of our own spiritual maturity, should rejoice in the same things that God rejoices in. Let me conclude with this. Here's what this text is telling us. The sign of our growth and maturity isn't our own perfection. Rather, it's to admit how imperfect you are and and to submit to God's process of sanctification. I I like the fact that Paul is giving us this instruction, giving the the church at Philippi this instruction, not as individuals, although he could have done that, but he's basically talking to them as a group. It's as if he's saying, you know what? God has justified you. You're going to run the race. If he justified you, surely God's going to call you to glory. You're going to finish the race. But oh, how much better it is if you've got company. God wants us to be get together on the journey. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would be helpful, perhaps even challenging to those who, um, who needed to hear it. We all need to hear it. Lord, thank you um, that you are a God that grows us, that you grow us and you encourage us not to look back. Not to, not to look back on, on all those things that used to define us, but to strain for it, to press on toward the goal of, the, of the, the, the high calling in Christ Jesus. And so we do that today. Lord, I pray a special prayer for, uh, for those, uh, all of us who are celebrating Thanksgiving this week. Lord, we have a lot to be thankful for. We live in a great country. We have great leaders. We're surrounded by... Um, good people who uh, mean well. Sometimes we um, see so much negativity in the news and on social media that we forget uh, just the bounty that you've given us, the blessings of life. And so, Lord, we take time to say thank you. Thank you for um, your provision. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for providing. Thank you for this church and the friends and family that we've made. Thank you for Jesus and his gospel. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Amen.